Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Evercatinas. And uh, sorry for last week's cancellation. Uh, came down with something the night before, and so it's feeling pretty low, but on the mend. And uh, so hopefully we'll be able to make it through a full group tonight. Uh, as I said, we're picking up on page 355, and we're following along the same line of thought, uh, the nature of the spiritual battlefield and uh, something of the ferocity of the demons, but also the limitations of the demons in terms of how and they afflict us and how far they can affect us uh, in the spiritual battle. The more that we cling to God and cling to his will, the freer we become from their influence. And uh, in the following hypothesis, we'll begin to look at... Uh, something is called uh, taking the Shema or Schema, the Shema monk. I don't know if you've heard of the term. It's a monk who sort of takes a commitment really to live only only for the Lord. And it's really one who's, they wear a spe special garment, uh, embrace a certain kind of role of prayer. And it's not granted to very many, uh, only those who have really uh, embraced the monastic life for a long period of time. And uh, but he talks within the context of this about the importance of of not returning in one's thoughts or actions to the things uh, of the world, that to, to move away from the freedom that comes to us from Christ or from the life of obedience to shifting our focus on the things of the world uh, is something that leads to a great fall for us. And in fact, he says there's nothing that can be worse than this. So it'll be interesting to see how he develops it. But tonight, as I said, we're on 355, uh, picking up from the Gerontikon number one. <clears throat> Abba Anthony said that God does not unleash wars on this generation with the same vehemence as he did for the ancients. For he knows that men of today are weak and lack stamina. So it's sort of interesting that this would be spoke, spoken about so many centuries and generations ago. I'm not sure what would be said about our own generation and its stamina and uh, desire for God and strength that we have within the ascetic life. And uh, a good thing about groups like this is that I think it opens up a whole uh, new group of Christians, I think, to see the, the beauty and the importance of the ascetical life and uh, to give us the tools that we need, as well as the guidance of the fathers in that spiritual battle. And so in so many ways, we're blessed uh, with many guides, many spiritual elders, if not direct, then at least through the fathers. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see a kind of rebirth within the life of the church uh, in terms of the desire for God and the desire for, for holiness. Number two, Abraham, a disciple of Abba Agathon, asked Aga, Abba Poyman, what should I do when the demons war against me fiercely? Are the demons making war on you, replied the elder. They do not make war on us as long as we are doing our own wills. For our wills have become demons, and it is these that afflict us in order that we may satisfy them. If you want to learn whom the demons warred against, know that it was against Moses and those like him. And so, you know, the start of this hypothesis is interesting, you know, that there uh, is this humble acknowledgement that the zeal and the fervor for the ascetic life and for the spiritual battle that we are called to engage in can wane uh, from person to person, from generation to generation. We can fall into a kind of lukewarmness. And I think the monks saw it within themselves, too, that it very easily uh, one can begin to engage in the spiritual life sort of uh, in a pro forma kind of way. We follow a certain form of the spiritual life and yet lack that deeper zeal to give one's heart and one's thoughts and one's will to God completely. And so even here, uh, Abba Poyman saying that really we, we see it in Abba Moses, you know, that this kind of firm zeal and commitment and level of conversion that we don't see uh, or they weren't seeing in their own selves or in others of their day. 
A brother asked Abba Pambo, what do the demons prevent me from doing good? Why do the demons prevent me from doing good to my neighbor? The elder replied, do not say this, otherwise you are making God a liar. You should say rather, I have no desire at all to do good to another person. For God, knowing our wickedness in advance, said in the Holy Scripture, I gave unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So it's interesting. The point that I think that the uh, compiler of the text is, is leading us to is that we can't disassociate ourselves from the, the spiritual battle or depersonalize our own sin in the sense of saying that the demons are really kind of forcing us into this, that there has to be on our part a willingness and even the desire for the things that lie behind uh, the, the things that afflict us. And so too often we can say the devil made me do it, when in reality we want what the devil is holding out there for us. And so even while they're talking about the spiritual battle, they, they don't want us to be too quick in blaming the demons for everything. The demons certainly are relentless. They know our patterns of behavior and thought, but uh, we can't simply blame them as if we are detached from the whole battle itself. Number four, a brother asks Abba Sissos, what should I do about my passions and demons? The elder replied, every man is tempted by his own lust. So again, you know, similar, similarly there, every man is tempted by his own lust that, uh, you know, what can I do about the passions and demons? We can ask that question again, as if we are a step removed. And uh, I think this is very important in this hypothesis, not to allow that step uh, to, to be placed there, that we, we realize that we have to be engaged fully in the spiritual battle and to be wrestling with both our passions as well as the temptations that come to us from the demons, not to see us ourselves as passive victims in this spiritual battle and uh, that we have to wage the, the war no matter how uh, afflicted we might seem to be by the specific temptations that come to us. Saint Syncletica said, the better athletes become, the stronger are the adversaries against whom they contend. So our entering into the spiritual battle doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to get easier for us as, times, as time goes by, that uh, the spiritual warfare seems horrendous, especially I think when one begins to first enter into it. And we struggle with the, the passions, in particular those tied to our bodily appetites. And we think, oh goodness, you know, that I'm, I'm done for. And, uh, but, you know, with the labor in the spiritual battle and by God's grace, one can reach a point where there is a kind of freedom there. But it doesn't mean that the, the battle becomes less fierce. The enemy begins to simply send upon us. And this is what he'll get to further on in, in the hypothesis in the next, is that there are various levels of demons, and they all have their own particular focus and ferocity. And so while we might overcome a certain demon or group of demons, or that those that seem to be drawing us into particular passions, uh, that there are, those, there are those that are far worse. And so we have to remain ever vigilant. Anthony writes, we are like clams. Demons are like starfish. We've got to struggle to keep the shields closed uh, to their devouring stomachs. That's right, you know, that there is... Uh, an insatiable, and we'll see this in the coming paragraphs, uh, desire that the, the demons have to draw us into sin. And it's interesting, he even describes it as the demons becoming saddened when they aren't able to achieve their purpose, when they fail to draw us into sin. And so that they are personally, as it were, invested 
in this spiritual battle uh, and have this kind of unholy desire to draw us draw us into sin. And so it it continues to drive them on uh, as much as we have to strive and struggle for the life of holiness. Once Abba Moses was severely beset by thoughts of fornication and unable to sit any longer in a cell, departed and confessed his thoughts to Abba Isidore. The elder told him to return to his cell. However, not wishing at all to listen to this advice, he replied to Abba Isidore, I can no longer hold out, Abba. The elder then took Abba Moses with him, and after climbing onto the roof of the cell said, look toward the west. So he looked carefully in that direction and saw a host of demons provoking confusion and causing disturbance with their warmongering. Then Abba Isidore said again, now look toward the east. When he turned to the east, Abba Moses was, saw countless hosts of holy angels surrounded in glory. The elder then said to Moses, there, these are that you see are the ones the Lord sends to help the saints who struggle. But the ones that you saw previously in the West are those who make war on them. Our allies, therefore, are greater in number. This is why you should have courage and not be afraid. After this, Abba Moses gave thanks to God, took courage, and returned to his cell. And so we can find ourselves becoming faint-hearted in the spiritual battle uh, because it can seem uh, to us like it did to Abba Moses that we're simply outnumbered. And when we look at the world, and Abba Anthony did something like this as well, looking out at the world and seeing all the demons, you know, he cries out to, to God, who can save us? And he hears a voice that simply says, humility. You know, this willingness to rest upon the grace of God and to trust that he will provide us with what is needed. And so Abba Moses is, is presented with this image then to uh, embolden him in the spiritual battle, that he's surrounded by a far greater host of angels that are his allies in the spiritual battle. And it is this, too, that we have to keep our focus upon when we are engaged, not to see ourselves in isolation, but in communion with uh, the angels and the saints and with our Lord himself in the spiritual battle. And so long as we cling to you know, their aid, but especially to the grace of God, then we have, need have no fear, no matter how fierce the battle becomes. Any questions or comments so, so far? <clears throat> Pretty clear and to the point. Number seven, an elder said, when a monk first renounces the world, the demons are not permitted to harass him violently, lest he be startled and frightened and thus return quickly to the world. However, when with the passing of time, he makes progress in ascetic labors, then battles involving fleshly desires and pleasures are unleashed against him. Whereupon the monk is distressed and feels the need to be humbled and to mourn and to condemn and accuse himself for all the sins that he has committed and now commits. Stripped in this way by temptations, he learns patience, acquires experience and discernment, and takes refuge in God thereafter with tears. Then God dispels the machinations of the enemy and little by little brings the monk to respite. Some who have been remiss in their effort have either killed themselves out of their great distress or have returned to the world defeated by great greed. And so there is a wisdom in, and providence in God's actions that he will allow us to be afflicted, uh, but especially early on, uh, not beyond our capacity. And uh, it might not feel like that. I think we might feel like we're besieged on every side, but if it weren't for the Lord protecting us, we would immediately be overcome. And so we are allowed to undergo this kind of affliction in order to teach us. And some important 
aspects we are told, patience, uh, we learn from the experience of it, discernment, and we learn to take refuge in God and to mourn for our sins, the ones that we commit at the moment or the ones that we've committed in the past. And so the spiritual warfare uh, that seems so intense to us, God himself uses in order to strengthen us against future conflicts. And so again, no matter how deep the battle seems to become or how fierce, we, we should have no fear. Eric. <clears throat> this is kind of a deep philosophical question, I guess. <clears throat> but why is it that God allows some people to be so tempted that they do, you know, as the text says, kill themselves or go back to the world and give up on the life of faith. It seems that God would know what they're capable of and not push them beyond their limits. Um, I, I, I find that kind of a mystery that, that's hard to, uh, to, to, to fathom. Can, can you provide any insight into that? I think it has to do with you know, certainly our freedom as human beings and how we exercise that, how we take hold of the grace of God and how we foster the depth of our faith in God. And I think there is a point where, you know, that we uh, can begin to lose that faith and trust in his grace, or we allow things to become so darkened for us that uh, because of our immersion, in sin, that it becomes very hard to see God. You know, if we're immersed in darkness, and if we make cho choice after choice to enter into it, then it's going to be harder to hold on to what uh, the authors are saying here. You know, this trust in the grace of God or the ability to discern the movement of, of the movements of the demons. And so it can be negligence on our part our unwillingness to take hold of what it is that God is offering to us, that we can scorn the gift of God and his grace. And that's part of the, I think, the weightiness of life itself, that we are involved in a relationship uh, of love and the gift of love that requires that we receive it and take hold of it. Or we, if we scorn it, then uh, that, that is our choice, but we also experience the, the fruit and the consequence of that. Uh, you know, it's a hard question, you know, especially when we look at someone like Judas. And, uh, but I think as we have often talked about in the past, that it's, it's often those who are closest to Christ who betray him the most. And, uh, you know, those he's bestowed enormous gifts upon have the capacity to betray him in these extraordinary ways, you know, to seek to take hold, uh, you know, of their own will or to place it above that of the Lord's. And, uh, you know, I think this is part of the reason, too, and we might be jumping a little ahead of ourselves, that in the next hypothesis, he talks about these schema monks or shema monks who make this deep commitment to the Lord and how it's the worst thing possible to shift one's attention back to the things of the world when one has given, when God has given one such gifts in the spiritual life and even has, have, has led them to make this commitment to the Lord on a very deep level. And so, you know, we have to acknowledge the, the freedom in this relationship, that his grace is not forced upon us uh, any more than, than love can be forced upon uh, any individual. And we can hold it cheap, or we can, again, allow ourselves to be pulled back to the things of this world and turn away from that grace. Uh, it's never that God ceases to love us or ceases to act on our behalf, uh, but not in the sense of forcing himself upon us. And, you know, I don't know, I think part of what is, what Christ experiences in the passion, you know, when we think of uh, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the cries, again, from the cross, you know, the, the, the knowledge that, I think part of that includes the knowledge that there would be many who do not embrace that love, and who turn away from it for one reason or another. And, uh, 
that there is, you know, a deep sorrow and mourning over that unrequited love. <clears throat> Did you want to add to that or a follow up? Um, I actually, I actually had another question about the schema monks and their uh, their commitment to the Lord. What what are you contrasting that with? I mean, shouldn't all disciples be committed to the Lord? Um, what what distinguishes their commitment from anybody else's commitment? I, I think length of experience and uh, the depth of that commitment to not to live for themselves in any way, but for the Lord and for, for the salvation of others. And so there's, you know, a kind of radical death, death to self and self-will that is reflected in their life of continuous prayer and the ascetic life. And, uh, and as I mentioned before the group began, that it's not something that's given freely uh, simply to anyone, that, uh, that the abbot has to be very discerning in that regard, uh, that the person has entered into the spiritual life and it's sort of like the idea of solemn vows, I think might be an easier way for us to wrap our mind around it, where, uh, say, a nun in a convent uh, has embraced the vowed life. Uh, but there's a point of, you know, where they make these solemn vows that are irrevocable, that are morally binding to them, and that no one can release them from. And... Uh, and so on a similar level, not that they would use that language at all in the East, but I think on a similar level, you know, a person has engaged in the monastic life with such depth that they commit themselves, you know, both in terms of the way that they live their life to a pattern of prayer, uh, all the way down to the garb that they wear as well. Uh, that if you if you look it up online, it has very symbols and markings on it that is a reflection of and a reminder to them of the nature of that commitment and death, you know, the death to the world that is their their passion, death to the passions, their own willfulness in every way. And so, you know, I think the authors will do a better job than I am and explaining it. We'll wait till we get to that hypothesis, but I think for now, that's in essence, the distinction. Any other comments or questions before moving on? Okay. St. John Cassian, letter B on page 256. Abba Serenos said that the demons do not in consort, do not in consort at the same time, stir up all the passions in men. But each passion has its special appointed evil spirit, which inspires the respect of passion in men. Some evil spirits, that is, are delighted with by impurity, filth, and stench of pleasures. Others, again, by blasphemies. Others rejoice in anger and rage. Others in grief. Others in vainglory. And yet others in arrogance. Each of these evil spirits prefers to incite incessantly that passion which he sees the soul gladly entertain. So it's an interesting thing that as many as there are demons, there are those that can sort of focus on the particular uh, passion that we are most vulnerable to or seem to be attracted to. Likewise, they do not vex all men in the same way, nor do they sow their evil in all men in similar fashion, but variously and in proportion to the specific conditions presented by circumstances, persons, and places. Among themselves, the evil spirits either work together, or at times the one yields his place to the other, maintaining for all that neither conformity nor order as such in their relations with each other. For scripture says, thou wilt seek understanding from evil men, and thou wilt not find it, and our enemies are void of understanding. So a curious kind of thing, that there isn't like this concerted and ordered effort, that their one sort of unifying purpose is to lead men into sin. 
and they might yield, you know, for one reason or another. But for us to try to understand that, Cassian is saying, is uh, almost an impossibility, that we cannot know the mind of the wicked or of the evil, and uh, at least not to the extent of the demons, as to why they would act in certain ways or circumstances in the fashion that they do. In spite of this, the demons somehow achieve unanimity among themselves in conducting their warfare against us when they cede to each other, as we said, opportunities and places for arousing the passions. For nobody can be deluded by vainglory and inflamed by a desire for fornication at the same moment, nor can, again, can he be inflated with arrogance and degraded by gluttony or laugh and kafal like a foolish child, and at the same time be provoked by the goads of anger. But each one of the evil spirits must attack a man in the appointed order and make war on him in this way. And when it turns out that he is defeated and withdraws from the embattled man, then he transfers the fight to another, more aggressive evil spirit. So again, you know, the, if there is a unifying purpose. It is to draw a person into darkness and into sin, and an awareness that at that moment, if there is a passion that is dominant, that their attempt to draw a person into another passion is not going to be fruitful. And so if they back off, it's only for that reason uh, that the another stronger demon is going to try to pull them into something else like anger. Like one isn't going to be drawn into laughter and buffoonery when they're filled with anger and hostility towards another. And uh, so that particular demon will, you know, cede his place and uh, give way to another. But it's, it's not like working in communion, uh, a communion of love, you know, and so it's hard to, to, for us to wrap our minds around it, other than, you know, the law, it's the logic of evil. But, you know, how can one really speak of that with a kind of clarity other than, you know, what Cassian did, which I think is extraordinary. We should be aware of this as well. Not all the demons have the same ferocity or the same power. Rather, there is a difference among them with regard to the power and also the energy with which they fight and the character of the desire that they instigate. That is to say, when the athletes of Christ begin to struggle for virtue, and while they are still weak, they fight against weaker spirits. But when these weaker spirits are defeated, they are always succeeded by more aggressive opponents. For if the arduous struggle were not waged in, in proportion to human capacity, then none of the strugglers would be able to endure the terrible savagery of such dreadful and innumerable en enemies. So they differ in ferocity and power. And the th this is a humbling thing because what we're being shown and told is that it's really only God by his grace that holds them back from, you know, in their savagery tearing us apart. And so it's the constant protection of our angels and of the intercession of the saints and the grace of God that allows us to engage in that warfare as we are able. But should, we should never be under the illusion that, again, you know, we are these great conquerors. It's sort of like the, the apostles coming back and they're rejoicing over, you know, we have power over the demons, you know, to cast them out in your name. And they're sort of, you know, ecstatic about this and the lord has to warn them you know don't rejoice over this you know rejoice rather that your names are written in the book of heaven or the book of life you know that if if you have power over the demons it's because god has given that to you but don't rejoice in it as if it's some you know personal strength of your own and uh it's a, the, an important thing because I think we can sh sort of show a glee about certain spiritual things that take place in our life, or we can be excited about what we hear others doing or saying. 
uh, in the spiritual life and become overly enamored with that. And there, there can be, uh, you know, that can open us up to a whole host of uh, things that we can't even imagine in terms of the deceit of the evil one. There's too much that's played out in a very public forum uh, about these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, what this or the, that exorcist is saying about, you know, such a thing. And I think there can be a kind of danger in that. Uh, it's, you know, it's one thing, I think, for Cassian to describe for us the nature of this battle and how they act. It's another thing for us to let our, our imaginations be taken hold of, e even about things in regards to the spiritual life, because then we become open to that danger that the disciples did, you know, that we can become very excited about something, that we're going to gain control over this evil one, you know, by this or that prayer. And it's like, well, okay, but there's going to be, you know, uh, another demon waiting in the wings to pounce on us. So don't become overly ecstatic about that, you know, be sober-minded, watchful, and understand that the spiritual battle is a constant warfare. And if you happen to overcome one, another more fierce is going to come upon you. <clears throat> Any comments so far on Cassian's? All right. We should be aware of this as well. I'm sorry, I think I already read that. Nor could a man completely stand up against their hostile rage unless he were shielded in this struggle by Christ, who loves mankind as the mediator, the president of the contest, and the judge, leveling out the struggle against the adversary according to our strength, impeding and removing from us the excessive onsets of the foes, and not allowing us, as scripture says, to experience temptations greater than our strength but contriving such that the conduct of the struggle should correspond to our stamina and that we might be able that we might be able to endure it so we are shielded by Christ in such a way that we can take hold of the grace that is give up, given us engaged in the spiritual battle but not in in such a way that we will be overwhelmed if we are faithful if we are obedient if we cling to his will, to his grace, then we can engage in the spiritual battle without anxiety. Uh, the moment that we take our, our focus off of him and place it back upon ourselves uh, is where we, we fall into fall into danger. We believe likewise that the demons wage this war with weariness and toil. For they too have worry and distress, above all, when they clash in combat with patient and strong men who do not give way. The apostle confirms this when he tells us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and so on. And again, when he tells us elsewhere, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. And in another place where he writes, I have fought a good fight. Where struggle, wrestling, and combat are waged, of necessity, desperate efforts, toil, and pain are observed in the opposing side. And just as we rejoice when we are victorious, whereas we are saddened when we are defeated, so it is with the demons. And as long as they overcome us, they are delighted. But whenever they achieve no success against us, and are conquered, though they may be have labored mightily, then the shame of defeat, which might have been ours, passes over to them. And the saying of scripture is fulfilled. His travail shall return upon his own head. Or the other, let the trap that he hath hid catch himself. So it's an interesting notion, I think, you know, to, to ponder that the, the demons can undergo a kind of anguish when their, their toil fails and when they find someone 
is that is conformed to Christ in the spirit of obedience and humility and where they are overcome and that there is a kind of shame Cassian tells us or sorrow that comes over them in defeat that what they would heap on our heads becomes thrown back upon themselves and uh you know, I don't, before having read Cassian, I, I would never have considered such a thing. You know, how is it that the, the, the demons are ultimately defeated and uh, by, by the saints? And, you know, it is through, I think, this growing sense that a person is conformed to Christ and that, you know, that their, their efforts are ineffective. And so, you know, unable to fulfill their, their desires, they're driven. Uh, what, what, you know, what the nature of it is, I don't think we can explain. I think uh, it's sort of interesting in the movie, The Passion, there's a little bit of it that's captured there towards the end at the crucifixion and the awareness of the evil one that, uh, that he's failed. And, you know, the mask is torn off and, you know, this wailing goes up you know, at that moment. And, uh, and so I think what Cassian is, is doing here and communicating to us through scripture, in particular, Paul is telling us that, you know, we are engaged, engaged in this hand-to-hand -hand combat and that the evil one is vested in this that there is an ego there, if you will, invested in this, and that it fills the pain when the efforts are thwarted. And one would expect that there would be a massive kind of ego and arrogance, you know, that would be present there. And so when defeated, the shame that would be experienced would be massive as well, I think is what Cassian is trying to tell us, that there's no humility in the demons and so what they're going to experience is outright shame fail at having failed and probably going from the this experience of being so sure as in their capacity to bring down you know someone who's engaged in the spiritual warfare because of their capacity and their restlessness uh, uh that uh <clears throat> unresting nature that you know that they can be overcome by a weak and poor human being, but one that's aided by the grace of God. So, any thoughts on that? I think Paul, what's the phrase that he talks about heaping coals upon, you know, I think that's the experience, you know, of the demons. You know, I think we, uh, as we engage in this battle and overcome it, you know, that there's there's something that makes that that the suffering that is part of evil itself intensify. <clears throat> the prophet David was fully aware of all these things, and he saw with the eyes of his soul this invisible warfare. And since he well knew how much our enemies rejoice when we fall, he said to God, lighten my eye, lighten my mine eyes, lest I sleep in death, lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him. Those that afflict me will rejoice if I'm shaken. And again, let not them that are mine enemies rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, aha, it is well to our soul. Neither let them say we have swallowed him up. He also sang of the shame of the demons or the, what the demons feel when they are overcome. And whenever we, he prayed before God against them, let them be ashamed and confounded that devise evils against me. And the prophet Jeremiah says, let mine enemies be ashamed, but let me not be ashamed. Bring upon them the wrath of thine anger and crush them with double destruction. The demons are indeed crushed twofold when they are vanquished by us. The first crushing occurs when men attain to that sanctity, which although they once 
possessed it, they lost. The second stems from the fact that although the demons are spirits, they are defeated by earthly and fleshly men. I love the, the fathers in the way that they read the scriptures and how they hear something like the Psalms and David crying out against his enemies, that there isn't this temptation that they have to direct this towards, towards other men, but toward the true enemy for us, and that is the, the demons. And so when we, it should change the way that we pray the Psalms. You know, we, we can have that tendency that we, we read the scriptures with an eye towards another, you know, and, uh, and, you know, there's a danger in reading the Psalms in such a way you know, that with this kind of hostility towards our fellow man, when it's really towards the demons that it should be, should be directed. Eric writes, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink for you. He coals a fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Okay, so it's it doesn't quite fit what I was thinking about here. But I think the, uh, not at all, because I think, uh, you know, Paul is talking here about responding with charity towards those who treat us with enmity. But um Getting back, I think, to what Cassian is saying here, again, is helpful for us in, in the spiritual battle, you know, that we wage it and wage it with an equal kind of ferocity and understanding, again, the, the, the nature of the evil one themselves, that there won't be satisfaction unless we are overcome and unless we are brought to shame. And so we have to wage this battle and wage it in, in Christ and confident that he can bring to shame even those who seem to be so much stronger than us. Okay, anything about what Cassian has said here? Okay. Moving on then from Cassian to St. Maximus the Great. Some, may, some say that there would not be evil in men unless some other power enticed us towards it. But this power is nothing other than the neglect of the natural energies of the spiritual mind. For this reason, all who are attentive to them constantly perform good deeds and never bad ones. If you are willing then, drive negligence far away from yourself and with it you will expel evil which is mistaken judgment in thoughts accompanied by the misuse of things. The natural order of the rational part of the soul consists in our being made subject to the divine logos and in ruling over the irrational part of ourselves, namely the passions. Let this order then be preserved in all cases. And then evil will not exist in men and neither will the power that lures us towards evil ever manifest itself. You know, th that's one of the paragraphs I think you want to write wow next to, because what Maximus, may maybe in a, a more uh, abstract way, but no less powerful is telling us that if we allow ourselves and our minds to be guided by the word of God, then our tendency to move towards the irrational, to choose the things that are contrary to that will begins to dissipate. And if we give ourselves over to, the, uh, to this fully, then that, that which is irrational is redirected in order towards the rational, which is choosing God, choosing that which is good and choosing life for ourselves. And one, can be brought to a point if we give oneself, if one gives oneself over to this fully, where the evil will not exist in the heart of such a, a man or a woman. That you know they're so given over uh, to God and His Word and His will in their life that it drives it from from the heart. And so again, you know, we get a certain clear image here of the goal, the ultimate aim that we are seeking in our life, which is to turn away from sin completely 
and turn to God and offer him all that we are and have. To let go of our own will and allow ourselves to be guided by God himself who now dwells within us is the path that leads to life. And every once in a while, I think it's important for us to go back and read a paragraph like this to regain that clarity. You know, th this is what's offered to us. This is what's promised to us. That we can put on the mind of Christ in such a powerful way that one becomes impervious to the deceit of the evil one. <clears throat> Any comments about Maximus? Okay, again from the Drontcon. About Abba Isaiah, the following is told. One time he took a wicker basket, went to the threshing floor and said to the farmer, give me some wheat. Have you reaped Abba, asked the farmer. No, the elder answered. How is it that you want to take wheat without having reaped, said the farmer again. The elder responded, so if a man does not reap, he does not receive pay. Certainly not, replied the farmer. After this reply, the elder departed. When the brothers saw what he had done, they made a prostration and begged him to tell them the meaning of this action of his. The elder replied, I did it as an example so that you might understand that if a man does not work, he does not receive his wages from God. So, you know, as you know, we've heard from Paul so far, you know, that we are engaged in this fight of faith. We are wrestling with principalities and powers. And here from Abba Isaiah, we're told that we have to be willing to engage in the labor the, the grace of God is given to us precisely for that purpose, to fight the good fight uh, of faith. And what is most dangerous for us is to neglect it or to fall into lukewarmness or laziness and uh, to hold it of no account. And so always from the fathers, we have these simple homey examples. Uh, but, you know, in many ways, it's preferable, I think, to what often happens. I think we intellectualize the faith and how the faith is lived out on a day-to-day -day basis. And we neglect these fundamental things that, you know, God has given us everything, but we are still called to labor and to fight and to invest ourselves and invest ourselves completely. This is the pearl of great price. And so we should be willing to saw everything in order to possess it. Number two, an elder was sitting in the desert. His cell was about 12 miles from water. One time, as he was going to fetch water from the spring, he became resentful and said to himself, why should I toil in this way? I will come and settle near the spring. Scarcely had he thought this, that he sensed that someone was following him. He turned around and saw that the one who was following him was measuring his paces. The elder then asked him, who are you? I'm an angel of the Lord, he replied, and God sent me to measure your paces and give you the corresponding wages. When the elder heard this, he took courage, became more eager and withdrew deeper into the desert by, by another five miles. That is, after he had settled in his new abode, he was now 17 miles away from the spring. So, you know, how it is that we labor and how it is that we engage in the spiritual life, how we invest ourselves from moment to moment does not escape the view of God. And it reveals our desire uh, for for God himself, but also for the life of holiness. And so, you know, those who have this desire to overcome their own negligence, their own laziness, are not going to constantly be scouting out ways to ease that struggle for themselves. And, uh, but rather to take hold of what it is that's before us 
And then having perhaps gained courage such as this father uh, to even to deepen that. So not to be afraid of it, but to be aware that it leads a person to rely more upon the grace of God. And that we, we strengthen our, ourselves by engaging again in the exercise of the faith and asceticism and exercising a kind of strength over our own will and willfulness in order to give ourselves over to God when he calls us to do, do something and embrace his will that might be difficult in our life. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take much soul searching. I think, you know, when we look at our days and we, you know, come across something that could be done more easily or not done at all, or uh, we could have somebody else do it, <laughs> that we will sort of take that path for ourselves. And uh, always looking for the easy way out. And that can be true within the spiritual life as well. You know, what, 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 what is it that I, I have, what's the least amount that I have to do? You know, as a priest, you sort of hear that a lot. You know, what, what can I do without like really falling into grave kind of sin? So, you know, how lazy can I be in the spiritual battle without falling into something mortal where I place my soul in jeopardy? But, you know, in the asking of the question, it's sort of a, a revelation of what is in the heart that there's a lack of desire for God, a lack of love for what is given, and a lack of a sense of the preciousness of it. That our thoughts should be, you know, not as what the least is that we can do, but how can we fully take hold of what God has entrusted to us, no matter how simple or small, and fulfill it with love, and not be looking for a way to avoid whatever it is at the moment, the cross or the difficulty of it. And we see how, you know, subtle the movement is for him. You know, for all this time, he had been going to gather that water and the thought comes into his mind, you know, why am I doing this? There, ha there can be an easier way, you know, that I, I can be closer or, you know, and there are other monks who are tempted to store up things, you know, uh, I think we heard early in the Evergatinas about a monk being sort of driven uh, hiddenly, in a hidden way by a demon to chop like more wood to build up a supply for himself and driven almost like a madman in order to, you know, build up stores. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, there, and even in things like that, we can be looking to provide a uh, kind of ease for us, if not today, then tomorrow, you know, that we want to protect ourselves from the reality of day-to-day -day life. And so much of our life is built on that, not living in the moment, you know, the, in, in the way that we do our work, we're, we're often with, have our eyes to the future and we're driven by a kind of anxiety about it. And in that we lose sight, I think, sometimes of the things that are most important, let alone our relationship with God. So you see where the elder is leading us here. Anybody have any comments? <clears throat> uh, Rachel wrote, servant of God, Willie Doyle, used this very saying to help him keep going when faced with temptations against many mortifications. It's Willie Doyle. I love him. And he's, he's this Irishman who is uh, a chaplain in the military. And I think a Jesuit by training, if I remember correctly. But uh, if you read his life, which is really beautiful, I think he's, I don't know if his cause has been started yet or not, but he really lived a heroic life, certainly in the military and the care of his men as a chaplain. But he led this life of extraordinary asceticism that uh, preceded and, but was also a part of his military service and uh, that allowed him to be able to serve heroic, these guys heroically. 
but the spiritual preparation that went into this uh, in his ascetic life comes out almost in every uh, line that he writes in his in his journals. And so he's, uh, if you're looking for a, a good uh, holy man's memoirs to read and a good biography, Willie Doyle would be a good one. Good Irishman. <clears throat> Number three. Yeah, Rachel's right. Like the Avergatina's Father Willie Doyle's book can be jarring. Yeah, there are certain aspects of his asceticism that really can take one back thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this is what he was embracing. But it sort of comes together in the whole portrait of his life. You begin to see how it's all connected and that it wasn't you know asceticism you know for its own sake or its own end that it bore this enormous fruit for himself and for others it is said of abba uh, Cameron of skeetis that the cave was 40 miles from the church and from the spring and the marsh from which he gathered rushes 12 miles and yet the elder never grumbled at the great toil entailed in getting what he needed for his handiwork and getting necessary water and going to the church every Sunday as was uh, as he was accustomed. So again, not learning not to complain, but not uh, to quickly alter the circumstances to immediately bring us to that place of ease and you know it's hard i think in our day and age not not to want that immediate relief you know every one of our commercials about medications does this you know take this pill and you'll stop having this experience and use this this kind of aspirin and you'll never have a headache have to deal with having a headache again use excedrin you know, and uh, uh, and so it's we're really built into the modern psyche to to avoid inconvenience and to avoid and you know any kind of pain or difficulty, and uh, you know we want things instantaneously. Uh, you know, even you know being sick. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was wish to myself, gee, I wish I could have an antibiotic, even though I, I know it probably would do me no good. Psychologically, though, I have it in my mind, you know, an antibiotic is going to kill quickly whatever I'm struggling with. And, uh, and we know, you know, that this is even a problem medically, you know, that we, everybody, you know, is asking for antibiotics and then when they, even when they don't need them, when it's viruses. And, uh, and so, but on a spiritual level, when we think about this, how, how that can weaken us, the moment that we come up against something that where we have to do without or deal with hardship, uh, we want to flee from it and ease it in some way, rather than seeking to find God within that moment or using it as an opportunity to educate ourselves through experience or to strengthen our, ourselves and our self and our will in order to give our will over to God when we are faced with, with things of, of greater meaning and greater importance. <clears throat> and again, you know, I think this is where, you know, the ascetical life comes into focus, I think, for our generation. Yeah. It's, it's very hard for us to, to, I think, enter into the, the understanding of self-denial, of the me meaning of the cross, when in large measure so much of our life is we're engaged in avoiding the crosses of our day-to-day -day life. <clears throat> The remote control was probably the first modern one where nobody wanted to get up and turn the channel. <laughs> the, few channels <laughs> that, the few channels that you had. 
So I think they even made an animated movie of of this, and I can't remember. I remember somebody here has to remember Ren, uh, where like people are so heavy and fat, and they're being carried around uh, from place to place where they don't have to do any work whatsoever. Wally, that's it. <laughs> and uh, it sort of takes things to ex extreme, but it's like all these people being carried around by, you know, uh, machines, you know, so they don't have to do any, any kind of work whatsoever. Everything's become automated. <clears throat> So that bring we actually made it through one hypothesis tonight, and uh, so that's good. It hung together very well, I think, and I hope it gives us a sense of some other a, a deeper aspect of the spiritual battle and who it is that we're struggling with. <clears throat> okay, so I close there. Thank you for all your prayers this past week. Keep them coming. I have a full week ahead, multiple feast, and so I could use the grace and the prayers. So why don't we close there with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.